Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series entitled The Progress of the Gospel, focusing on the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 17 to 24. So let's join Dr. John Newfeld for a message entitled Reasons for Humility. We live in a culture that has made popular a new phrase. It's the phrase self-promotion. One dictionary has said that self-promotion refers to the things that one does or says in order to make people notice you and to think you are important. So when years ago the boxer Muhammad Ali said that he was the greatest, he was merely promoting himself. In other times, we might have called that pride or even arrogance, or some might even say he was using a title reserved for God alone and applying it to himself. But in our day and in our culture, we merely say he was doing what he could to draw attention to himself and to his career, self-promotion. Self-promotion is but one of many examples of incipient pride or a lack of humility. You know, the interesting thing about the entire book of Romans is that it can be seen from one vantage point as a book or a tract that utterly smashes human pride. By declaring that sin is universal and debilitating, that we sin actively and at the same time are helplessly ensnared by sin's power, Paul presents a view of humanity that can only lead to humility. Furthermore, by stating that Christ alone can save, the book leaves us with a view of ourselves in which we are either objects of God's condescending mercy or we're absolutely lost. And so from that vantage point, all Christian faith leads to humility. Paul's words in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is something that all Christians now confess as a fundamental statement of their faith. It is who we have become. But pride's a very devious thing. It comes back in, in some very deceitful ways and works as the enemy of all true faith. One can see this in the history of the early church in Rome. Although we can't be sure how the church began, the most likely scenario was that it began shortly after Pentecost, in which a number of newly converted Jewish believers from Rome who had been in Jerusalem at Pentecost and witnessed the beginning of the church made their way back to Rome. They organized a church, formed leadership, and set out to preach Christ. And sometime later, they were successful in winning a number of Gentiles to Christ, but the church remained under Jewish Christian leadership. But in AD 49, all of that was about to change. The Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from the city, and interestingly enough, our Bible mentions that event. It's recorded in Acts 18, verses 1 to 2. There we read, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, as an aside note, you know, God's always sovereign. For Priscilla and Aquila, the decree of the Roman emperor simply gave them a new avenue for ministry. Now, we also know that the Jewish community was allowed to return to Rome five years later at the beginning of Nero's reign in AD 54. Now, how does this matter affect the Roman church? Well, Paul wrote the book of Romans in AD 57, shortly after all this upheaval had taken place. 
Jewish Christians came back after five years, and as would be expected, after five years, the church had taken on new leadership, consisted completely of Gentile Christians. And so the old leadership came back, only to find the leadership of the church indifferent in Gentile hands. And if you read Romans 11 against that background, you could almost feel the tension. Verse 19 says, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And notice the emphasis is on the word I. Gentiles might have said, I now occupy a place that was once held by Israel. Oh, how quickly pride, which should have been banished with the first hearing of the gospel, comes so quickly back through another door. And so Gentile Christians who, by the sovereign hand of God, had been given salvation and a place of leadership began to concentrate on the I. I am grafted in. One begins to consider how the First Testament account of Israel's long history of idolatry and rebellion and her final chapter of rejection of her Messiah must have sounded to an all-Gentile church. Now, I think Paul was aware of that. He writes Romans eleven seventeen to 24 with that background in mind. This is a word to all Gentile Christians who fail to recognize their spiritual indebtedness to Israel. So let's read today's text, Romans eleven seventeen to 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, if you are. Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. And you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, before we dive right into that text, I, I feel I need to clear up a confusion. Critics of the Apostle Paul love to point out that what he is describing in this passage never happened, that is, in the real world of horticulture. See, in the ancient world, a wild olive branch was never grafted into a cultivated tree. It was the other way around. Productive olive branches were sometimes grafted into a wild, unproductive olive tree, thus making the wild tree productive. It was a way of quickly multiplying productivity. Critics of Paul suggest that Paul was this kind of a city kid who didn't understand the farm life, and therefore his illustration is mixed up and convoluted. But this criticism seems completely ignorant of his argument. According to verse 24, Paul calls what God has done contrary to nature. He deliberately describes a practice that was never done to point out how unexpected it was to witness what God had done. 
He had grafted in unproductive, wild olive branches, that is, Gentiles, into the tree of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God had then made them productive. And that, for Paul, is the miraculous nature of Gentile Christianity. It is unexpected from our perspective, and it works contrary to nature. But God has made it work. I think C.S. Lewis caught this idea well when he said, in a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. Everyone else is, from one point of view, a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. I think he's right. I remember preaching this text years ago, and sitting out in the congregation was a young Jewish man who had always believed that no Jew would ever be a Christian. Well, hearing this passage read, he gave his life to Christ on the spot. Indeed, he finally heard that the unnatural thing is not a Jewish conversion to Christ, but a Gentile conversion to Christ. That's unnatural. So let's look carefully at our text. Having acknowledged that a great majority of Israel was broken off from her roots because of unbelief, Paul then gives a very clear warning. Notice the beginning of verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, or in perfectly plain English, Gentile Christians must not be arrogant over against unbelieving Jews. Simple. Do not think of yourself as superior to non-Christian Jews. Now, by the way, arrogance is easy. I've often pondered the state in which we as Gentile Christians find ourselves. It's so easy for Gentile Christians to be arrogant toward non-Christian Jews. That's how we reason. We've come to recognize the true intent of the First Testament. We know that Jesus is the subject matter of the entire First Testament. He is the interpretive key to understanding the First Testament. A veil of ignorance lies over the mind of unbelieving Jews, and only in Christ is the veil removed. So. Pride, arrogance, a smug superiority followed by a condescension of Israel, eventually leading to hatred, so quickly to follow. Now, in order to prevent this pride from developing, Paul answers by giving us four antidotes to spiritual pride. Here's the first of them. It's followed in the second half of verse 18. If you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. You are dependent on the revelation that came from Israel. It's never been the other way around. Well, we'll continue in our study of Romans 11 when we return. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? Well, these are questions that live in the minds of many young adult Christians in our culture. Dr. John Newfeld said, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they're asking about gender identity. While we're responding to that need by hosting In Doubt's first In Doubt Live event about sexual identity. In Doubt Live will include speakers Dr. John Newfeld, leader of Ethos Ministry and pastor Dave Johnson, In Doubt's own ministry leader Isaac Dagno, and others. And the evening will include an open forum for questions and worship led by Brittany Dagno. So for more information about In Doubt Live, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at live.indoubt.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Mm-hmm. 
When we left off, we noticed that Paul is giving four very powerful arguments that should destroy the spiritual arrogance of Gentile Christians. First, the revelation of your salvation came from the root system of Israel. Now, Paul's second argument found in Romans 11, 19 to 20. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Now, it's impossible to read this passage with, without reflecting on everything that Paul has said about faith up to this point in the book of Romans. For Paul, faith is not a human work. We can never say, well, I believed and you didn't, and then in some fashion view ourselves as superior. Back in Romans 9, Paul has made it very clear that faith is a gift of God, and it's not a human effort, but the product of God's divine choice. Indeed, the idea that I have come to believe should fill each of us with a deep sense of wonder. See, I've noticed that the older statements of faith, both on the Arminian side and on the Calvinistic side, both were very clear on this point, that no human being can believe on their own. Our own sin, which is altogether corrupting, makes us reject the gospel. By our sinful nature, every single human being finds the gospel an unwelcome intrusion in their lives. As Paul states so simply in Romans 3, verse 11, no one seeks God. We didn't seek God, and yet we have come to believe. And that should immediately take away all reasons for our arrogance against unbelieving Israel. So we have no reason for pride because the root of Israel sustains us, and it is faith and not works that saves us. Now, a third reason for putting away pride is found in verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. Now, why should we fear? Now, listen to verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Several things here demand our attention. Why did God not spare the natural branches? That's the first issue. According to Romans 9.32, Israel did not pursue the law by faith. Now, to remind ourselves of what we said then, please notice that this means that Israel saw their law-keeping as a way of claiming superiority. Rather than leading them to be humble and acknowledge their need of grace, they saw the law as a work that earned them merit. Now, I hope we all hear that very loudly for how quickly Christians can adopt the same attitude. If God would not tolerate such an attitude in ancient Israel— do you think he's going to tolerate it in us? Now, Paul gives the final reason which humility is demanded of us. That's found in verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, I wonder how many of us actually take verse 22 seriously. There is a sense, and you can see it in this verse, in which salvation is conditional. I think William Hendrickson expressed this very well when he said, absolute unconditional promises guaranteeing salvation to either Gentiles or Jews, no matter how they live, exists only in the imaginations of people and not in Scripture. And even if you've been taught otherwise, please notice that God's kindness, which in this passage means his grace in forgiving sins, is only experienced as we persevere in his grace. If we step outside of grace, 
and live on our own merits, if we throw his demands behind our backs, no scriptural promise is extended to you. You want evidence of that? Let me give it to you. Until recently, the heart of Christianity rested in Europe. And as we have also noted, it was in Europe, through the influence of the church, where Jews were persecuted and maligned. Of course, the church didn't just persecute Jews. They, they persecuted all manner of others as well. If there's anything that reminds me of the history of European Christianity, it is the cathedrals. Large, ornate, lined with gold, built by huge enforced taxation, protected by armies, and everyone has a crucifix hanging in it. Now, how do you put those two images together, the, the impressive power of the cathedrals and the helpless man on the cross? I mean, what a contradiction between pride and humility. But what is Europe now? The cathedrals stand empty. It's because God has moved out. Just as he abandoned Israel for her rebellion, so also he has abandoned a greater part of Europe. You know, the image of the root and the branches is to remind us of two of God's attributes. One is his kindness, and the other is his severity. So have a look at what Paul is saying. Look, first of all, at God's severity towards those who have fallen. Perhaps no book better explains this than the book of Hebrews. Listen, for example, to two separate quotes from Hebrews. The first, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, an unbelieving heart leads you to fall away. And then Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the enemies of adversaries. I know that some people will say, well, you know, I prayed the sinner's prayer back in 2008 or whenever that time was, and I'm sure today, even though I'm sinning deliberately, I'm going to be okay. Remember, that's what Israel thought. I'm a child of Abraham. God made promises to Abraham and his offspring forever, and they deliberately kept on sinning. Now, some of you who are listening to my voice need to be alarmed and afraid for your own souls. Some of you right now are involved in cheating on your spouse or sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Maybe you're involved in theft or maybe you're neglecting the basic elements of your faith. Maybe you're projecting ungodly power in your church and you've been lying to yourself. You contributed nothing to your salvation. You were grafted in and you are now presuming on the kindness of God. Your soul is in peril and you don't even know it. You need to meditate on the severity of God. You need to repent. See, here's the good news. According to Romans 2, verse 6, the kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. So don't lose heart. 1 John 1, 9 speaks to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You come to God, you, you turn from your sin, you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you today and give you power to live according to the Spirit. And because of the kindness of God, he will listen to your prayers and he will do it. Meditate on the kindness of God and that will give you hope. But let's get back to the context. Gentile Christians must not be arrogant over unbelieving Israel. 
I remember years ago while our family was living in Southern California, I was studying the Hebrew language one summer, and, and that summer my professor took the whole class down to Fairfax in Los Angeles. It was a, a well-known Jewish area. We entered a large Jewish bookstore, kind of like a, a large chapters for Hasidic Judaism. It was fascinating. We were in a corner of that large store, and our prof, holding a Hebrew book, pointed to each of us in turn, demanding we translate on the spot. We were out of sight, and indeed, we were disrupting no one. As we were carrying on, a rabbi came over and demanded to know if we were Jews. And we responded that we were not, at which time he took the book out of my prof's hand and glared at him, saying, This is not for you, and put it back on the shelf, and then got out an English book and said, Read this. This is for Gentiles. I remember being angry. You who are called to bless the nations have just cursed us and humiliated our prof, I thought. You treated our Savior the same way, I thought. And then these words came to me. How dare you curse my chosen people? How dare you be arrogant? Does the wild olive branch gloat over the broken off natural branches? Do you add anything to the root? Does not the root support you? You see, these words will first of all serve as a warning that we must remain people of faith, but they also take away from us for all times the desire to be anti-Semitic. When I'm asked how I feel about Jews, I am compelled by my faith in Christ to respond, I love them. My faith in Jesus demands that I love and respect and pray for Israel. That's God's word to the wild branches. But for us, as Gentile followers of Jesus the Messiah, we are forever consigned to humility and to faith. So may it be. John, let's move a little bit from what you've been talking about regarding pride in the Jew and the Gentile to just pride within our own church, within our own Christian faith, that that sense that, you know, we can be doing something really well and all of a sudden insidious pride sneaks in and changes the whole perspective of what we're doing. Yeah, you know, we were talking at the break just uh, how many different forms of pride are there in our own lives. And, you know, one of the things that uh, seemed to me so obvious is that sometimes people who know their Bible very well, know their doctrines well, can defend it well, begin to be so condescending towards individuals who don't know their Bible as well as we do. And, you know, you've got to ask yourself, what is it that we've actually learned? And it turns out not that much, because uh, rather than learning that everything brings us to the place of humility, you know, there are so many different ways in which we look down on each other. May God have mercy on us, and me too. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every month, thousands of ministry friends across Canada send in their gifts to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, and we couldn't do it without them. Your gifts sustain our Bible teaching programs on this station, on our website, podcast, and mobile app. Your gifts provide for all of our audio programming electronically and all of our print resources and for free, breaking down barriers for anyone to access trustworthy Bible teaching. Your gifts provide our Young Adult Bible Engagement podcast and website in doubt to thousands of young people every day 
every month. Your kindness is so critical to all we do, so thank you, and please continue to support and bless this ministry with your prayers and gifts. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.